Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. No justice! No peace! We're fighting for change. We're fighting for peace. We just want to be, we want to be treated equally as, as everyone else. We want to be treated the same. We're crying out saying that we're not going to take it anymore, but uh, we're peacefully um, using what we have to make an impact. For the third night in a row, protests across the country and the city of Milwaukee turned violent overnight. Fires were set in the city and stores looted again. You do not gain anything by tearing up our community. No one wins. George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, died last week after a white Minneapolis police officer pinned his neck to the ground while Floyd begged for air. Floyd's death sparked protests all over the country, including here in Wisconsin. Today, we're talking about what's really happening during these protests, how we confront racism in our community, and where things go from here. From the Fox 6 studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson here with my colleague Amanda St. Hilaire. Good morning, Amanda. Hi, Brian. We are recording this episode on Tuesday, June 2nd. And we have two guests today, Fox 6 reporter Amy DuPont. Hi, Amy. Hey, good morning, guys. Thanks for having me. And investigative producer, producer Pete, will be joining us in just a minute. Amy, you've been covering the protests for several days now. Where do things stand right now? How did we get from Friday to today, Tuesday? Yeah, it's been interesting covering this over the last couple of days. The mood of these protests has definitely changed, right? I was out there Friday and Saturday, and especially over the weekend, we saw what started as peaceful demonstration. Let's make that very clear. The people that are organizing these demonstrations and protests that are taking place during the day, they are asking folks to be peaceful. And during the day, for the most part, people are. But we've seen problems as soon as the sun goes down. We saw a lot of damage on MLK. Uh, We saw some other buildings looted. We've heard reports of that happening in Brown Deer. But I can tell you, I was out here overnight, Monday into Tuesday, and Amanda, a big change over the last 24 hours. We have not seen any evidence of any damage, any looting, and we did not see any arrests take place overnight. So it appears things are calming down. And I really believe that is because the organizers really getting the message out there, hey, we want you to use your voices instead of violence. And I think I saw producer Pete has now joined us here on the podcast. Pete, are you there? Can you hear us? Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. So I, and, and, and we always refer to you only as producer Pete um, because Pete does a lot of undercover work for the investigative team. And so, you know, his, his real identity would compromise some of that work. But the one thing that is uh, important for you to know is that producer Pete 
is a black journalist. And and Pete, I, you know, we're we're friends on on Facebook, and I, I read some of your musings. And uh, earlier, I think it was actually back on Friday, uh, even before the weekend unrest, that you had written a pretty lengthy. Um, uh, sort of musing about all of what was going on here. And you you had one line that stood out to me, which was, that sort of encapsulated all. You said, you know, uh, life as a black journalist is peculiar, um, or, or being black in news is peculiar. Well, tell me about that, and what did you mean by that? Well, you're in an environment that is predominantly white, and this is not any, any opportunity to pick on anything or to complain or to... Uh, zero in on what could be seen as a major flaw. That's not what I mean by that. But in your, you're in that environment and in news, things happen quickly. And I've been in situations where uh, something like this will happen. And you're asked as the black person in the room, the black journalist to get access to some of these things that may be difficult for others. Uh, you talked about the OJ verdict. Well, yeah, and that dates me a little bit. And, you know, the OJ verdict was nationwide and the riots happened. Um, it's not just the OJ, but that was the first time it touched me personally, where I had to make a decision. Uh, do, you, do you do this as a black journalist or a journalist? But then you're asked by managers at the time. And it was a problem. It, now I look back on that and think it's a little naive, but I understand why they did it. You know, part of the reason why you're there is to bring the diversity and to get access, right? So in the big umbrella of diversity, that is true, and you should be asked to do that. But it feels weird when you go back into your community and take advantage of some of, some of the situations or relationships that you have uh, and bring that out into the open uh, and maybe uh, make some people vulnerable in an area where they probably didn't want to do that. And that's what I did as a young journalist and was ridiculed for it, uh, in some ways rightly so. My approach probably wasn't right. Uh, you know, I went into a barbershop to ask uh, for some reaction to the O.J. Verdict. And, uh, and, you know, you walk into a barbershop, it's loud, it's, it's vicarious, people are, you know, doing their thing. And it was complete. It was like the old commercial E.F. Hutton. It was just, just silent. Boy, talk about talk about dating yourself. You just referenced E.F. Hutton. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Yeah. So, uh, but it was the old commercial, the example that comes to mind. And so that was a learning experience for me that this is, uh, uh, no matter what your relationship is, uh, you have to be careful of not taking advantage of those. And, you know, I, I did it with no forewarning. I just went in there, not really guns blazing, but went in, you know, everybody knew what the deal was. But, uh, so I didn't hide anything, but I didn't approach softly in a sense that is there a chance here for me to open up come into your shop and do these things which is what i would do today uh and 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 probably you would have give people time to think about it to engage on a level where they were comfortable to bring them in and rather than just running in there and saying hey because they knew i was there why i was there and i knew why i was there and it, it quickly became obvious to me that my approach in that as a young journalist was. Uh, did that so, make you feel like, I mean, the, what you're describing, I was wondering, did you feel a bit like a sellout? You know, like you were coming oh, in because you were the black person there no, to get them to talk. No doubt, no doubt. And, you know, and like I said in my thing, I, I couldn't go back to that barbershop again. You know, it was in my community, it was a well-known barbershop. I didn't go there for, for personal reasons, but I couldn't go back there <laughs> because I was, I was looked upon as one of them now. Right. So one of them, meaning one of the media, one of the at that time, white media. Oh, 
or you know someone that is trying to take advantage of us because a white entity asked you to do that or uh, you know there wasn't a whole lot of conversation with me at that point as to why I was not uh, welcome <laughs> but it was uh, it was you know I gotta say whenever something like this pops up I look at that experience and it it gives me pause. It makes me it makes me careful. It makes me uh, think. To use a military analogy, if you're in the foxhole, or do you want to think at thirty thousand feet? Two very different perspectives. Uh, you know, I tend to think uh, at higher elevations now, as is capable with my understanding, uh, because I don't have a PhD in all this. I just have experience. So it is an experience I now I cherish. But it took me a long time to understand why I should cherish it. And it took me a long time to understand uh, uh, why my approach was probably not um, ideal in a situation that was as volatile as that was at the time. Amy, hearing what producer Pete has to say and recognizing that, quite frankly, our newsroom is very white, what's going through your mind as you're covering these protests? trying to let the folks we interact with know that we are there to observe and tell their story. Uh, Unfortunately, whenever we go into these situations, and especially in this political climate, people assume if we're there, we're taking one side or the other. And I hope that people in Milwaukee know that we are your neighbors, we are your friends, that we are there to share your story. And so when I walk into one of those situations, I kind of lay low for a little bit and just kind of get the feel of the situation um, and try to speak with as many people as I can, both people that look like me, both people and people that don't look like me, because everyone's story is unique and important. And, and, you know, we do have the opportunity to share someone who maybe feels a little bit powerless, like a lot of people do in these situations, right? I mean, we speak with victims' family, and a lot of times they talk about being powerless. And so to help folks who feel that way have a bit of a voice, um, I think is one of the most important things we do as journalists, especially in our local communities. And so I think that's always our goal whenever we're going into these situations is to hear from people that we wouldn't normally speak with on every day. What has the police response been to these protests? Because we've seen videos uh, from all across the country of police uh, appearing to react quite violently in some cases to peaceful protesters or even journalists. I have not seen any of that here in Milwaukee, and I've been out three nights now. Um, There's an intimidation, no doubt, right? They are in their full riot gear. They're shoulder to shoulder. They're on top of buildings. There are concrete barriers. uh, But there has been very little interaction from police to the protesters. Now, protesters I've seen get right up there, right up to that line of officers and yell and scream and chant, um, especially Friday and Saturday. And I saw absolutely no response from the officers. The restraint that they have used here has been really good. Now, we did see that change a little bit over um, overnight tonight. Uh, we saw protesters thanking police. Thank you. Stay safe. God bless you. I heard an officer say back to them, God bless you. Um, so tempers are, you know, in control here in Milwaukee, but I have not seen any violence toward police or any violence from police. Um, There's been some heated words used, but absolutely no violence and, and restraint on both sides.
Now, Amy, you've been in the middle of all this, though, and, and you keep referring to the protesters, which you've seen them organize, you've seen them behave in a peaceful way, although maybe they, they've gotten in police faces and yelled and things like that. They weren't hurling bottles or rocks, at least from what you've seen or what you've just described here. But we know that then over the weekend, things did morph into uh, their, their, you know, looting and vandalism and things like that. And, and the, you've been out in it and I haven't. And I've, I've been an observer like anybody else from, you know, watching our own coverage. And what I wonder is, do you see this? Does this happen as the night goes on? Are they different people arriving? Are they generally younger? Are they, do you, is there any, do you get any sense of who the people are who are coming out and taking advantage of this situation to vandalize or to, to, to loot versus the people who are organized and protesting? You do. Okay. So even though it's a huge group of people, you will see the same faces at the beginning of the day. Again, we were out there both Friday and Saturday, and I went to four different events. And by the end of the day, all those events kind of mold into one. The groups get smaller and bigger throughout the day, but they typically kind of by the end of the day end up being one group. And you see the same people over and over again, and then the sun goes down. And, and that's when people who were not part of the original demonstration join on, right? So what we've seen here is people walk and then at the end of the day, a lot of cars start joining in. Um, and, and that's when you see people hanging out of cars. Uh, we saw some crashes. And you're right. Unfortunately, it is younger people that are taking part um, in in the looting, in, in the destruction and damage of property, and in more of the violence. It is not the people that show up in the afternoon. Um when things kind of flared during the afternoon, when the sunlight was out, you saw other members of that same group say, hey, hey, step back. Nope, we don't do that this way. We want our message heard and only our message heard. Now, were there a few people that were, you know, a little over the top during the day? Absolutely. I ran into one of those people, but it was one person, right? It's not the group. The group mentality changes after the sun goes down, but it's because different people get added to that group. I'm in a duck out. I got a hit here in three minutes. Amy, thank you for, for taking the time to join us here. Thanks, guys. Good luck. Producer Pete, what goes through your mind as you hear all this? Uh, several my goodness, it's, it's, uh, I have a friend in Minneapolis, not too far from where uh, uh, Mr. Floyd lost his life. Her family, we went to college together, and her family owns a store there. And she was on pins and needles the entire weekend, hoping that her family's store that they've had for 30 years wouldn't uh, be destroyed. Um, Sunday morning, she sent me a text and said, it's gone. We went from 30 years, and it's gone in a day. Uh, and, and it's, you know, the, the looting and she showed pictures of it and there's, you couldn't even tell what it was. It was, a uh, like a convenience, uh, uh, store of some sort sold, you know, things for the neighborhood. And, and I, I go back to what, you know, some family members have mentioned that, you know, marched in the sixties that did a lot of these things at, at a different time and place, but with the same message that we have today. And it is, it is, you know, what's interesting, it's, it's one of my uncles told me, he said, you know, Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or whatever activist you want to pick could not go to Wells Fargo, ask for a loan to help his people. What really helped black Americans specifically during the sixties and now, and what paid for civil rights with a check was black business. And if you go into these communities and burn down black business, the, you know, everybody knows the jobs are lost and all these things, but the opportunities that that business provides for the community that nobody knows about 
is not really written about. And so when I listen to these businesses being destroyed, you know, you're going to talk about two or three or four generations where that opportunity, that economic opportunity will not be available for anyone to enjoy uh, probably for the rest of their lives. My, my friend's family, they're checked out. They're done. They're not going to go back. They're not going to rebuild. They are tired. They have done this before. And, you know, I get a little emotional about it because I was a kid of an entrepreneur and I know what that feels like to provide something. My dad provided jobs in a community. My uncles marched and it's, it's a sad, it's, I didn't mean to do this today. It's, it hurts. It's sad. And I, I, I don't know what I tell my kids about this. I don't know, you know, I'll cover the work. I'll do the work because I signed up for it and I've learned from it. And it's not a big deal to me in that personal sense, but in overall, experience in America in 2020, you're, you're sitting there thinking what, and I don't want to use profanity, but there are some 29 letter words that I would love to use to get my point across. And who do you ask to fix this? And I just don't know. And that's what I'm thinking. Uh, That was uh, maybe as raw of a moment as I've ever heard from you. And, um, and very meaningful, and we appreciate you doing that. I know you didn't intend to, but I think it really speaks to your own struggle, not just as a journalist, but as a father, um, as a member of this community. And, and I wonder when you particularly, you have very strong things to say about the destruction of black businesses, of businesses in the very communities where this stuff has happened that serve those communities. And I wonder for those who are, as Amy described, uh, organizing to protest peacefully, who have a righteous anger about what occurred in Minneapolis and about what has occurred in so many places across the country. Is there an anger toward the people who are doing the vandalism and the looting and maybe taking advantage of the situation? Or is there an understanding and just sort of a a frustration that maybe it paints the wrong picture? I mean, I I guess from your point of view, how do you view that? It's, you know, it, it, it lets you know how, you know, if you're a marathon runner, it lets you know, you know, you got to train for the long haul, right? This is going to be a marathon that will outlive me, I think, um, in some ways. You know, you have, in part of my musings, I wrote that you have two generations that don't have Jim Crow as a firsthand experience, right? They study it and it's pictures and books unless you have family members that suffered through that thing. You you know, and some of it may be a class issue. If you are a well-to-do black family and provide uh, jobs for a community, and if you're someone that is maybe on the outskirts of that, you don't see the benefit of it. You think they're probably selling out or they're trying to get their money or whatever. And I'm, and I'm digging in the weeds here with a whole bunch of dairy, very different variations of the theme here. And I realize that. But I don't know if it's an education thing or, or you have to get people to understand that, you know, the, the courts are there for a reason. You know, you all the people we revere in the black community, you know, the Thurgood Marshalls, the band of brothers that did all these things in the Brown versus Board of Education and civil rights and the list goes on. There's a reason why that took forever because you, you do have to work for the process through the process that is available. There is a short fuse for people who don't want to do it that way. And then you have generations now who think, well, you know, Martin and Malcolm are dead. You know, they, they killed the Southern genteel man who said, love my neighbor, right, in this history. And this is not to mean 
to incite anything. And this is just me pontificating on what I've learned through history and studying and the personal experiences of family members that marched. And, and so now things are on a, on, a, on a fast course. They want people to hurry up, hurry up. I want this done now. And I think that's what is spilling out. You're not going to get this now. You know, the, the investigation in Minneapolis is going to take a very, very long time. Uh, and I've gone back and forth uh, with musings from other friends thinking, you know, should it be the second degree murder or should it be this, should it be that? And, you know, that the law has to take care of that. The law has to take care of protecting people and property. The law has to do it. They're, they're very, very busy right now. In the meantime, you have to understand uh, that all this is not going to take place uh, by next week. You know, you got the coronavirus, you got this stuff. The world is in a different place now. And we all are suffering in ways we never imagined at Christmas, right? So this is going to be a long haul. This is going to hurt. This is going to bother and shake up a lot of industries and jobs and experiences. Um, 2020 is going to be one of those years where we look back on and think, I just don't know how we got through it. You know, Pete, you you say something really fascinating there because you just brought up the time we're going through and and the pain and everything else. And I do wonder... Uh, with all of this, I mean, th- this seems to have been clearly a flashpoint for the country. But we, what we suddenly and you you wrote about this in in the Facebook post I referenced earlier. But you said in Minneapolis suddenly, and this was last Friday. You said uh, suddenly coronavirus is the fourth or fifth biggest story. You know, it's not even it's barely even on the list um, because of what's going on. And and nationwide, all of a sudden, we've almost not stopped talking about it, but we've certainly it's certainly taken a back seat to what's going on with, with these protests and with the vandalism and with the violence, with the clashes with police. Um, so there's the flashpoint of uh, police relations and police treatment of, of African-Americans in the country. Um, there, there are some of the bigger underlying problems that have bubbled up, the kind of things that are clearly very emotional. You look at what just happened as you expressed your own tale a few moments ago. But I wonder, we've had so many people pent up locked inside, unable to sort of express themselves and maybe really live life. Did this come at a time when there was just, I mean, was this a bubble waiting to burst because of the shutdowns and because of the way we've been living life? I don't know how much that plays into this, but it certainly seems like this is not a complete coincidence that things have, have blown up in the way that they did. Right. You got, you got what, 40,000 Americans unemployed now? That's a lot of people sitting at home to think about a lot of things. 40 million whatever the number of people that have been uh, misplaced and you have uh, uh, a lot of time to sit and think about it. And I think it is probably the, 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 what's the phrase, the uh, perfect storm for a lot of this to come out. Um, if this had happened, I mean, cause you know, the, the uh, Floyd situation in Minneapolis is not the first time. And, and, you know, the riots didn't come like this. You know, there are a lot of names that go on that list now. Um, and I, I'm not smart enough to name them all, but you know, the Tamir Rice, um, uh, the woman in, in, in Texas that was ambushed in her home and a few others in different parts of the country. Uh, but they didn't come to this level and this brought it to forefront because I think there are a lot of people at home and people are fed up for a variety of reasons and they're striking out. Um, and, you know, the COVID situation does not help in this uh, environment at all. Um, and I don't think people are really caring that much about it. And that is a problem that is 
adding to this problem in ways we haven't imagined. Pete, you know the law enforcement aspect because you have a military background. You're also a black journalist who is married to a white journalist and raising children in the metro area of the most segregated city in the country. So what conversations are happening in your house right now? Oh, Amanda, you have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I laugh because, Pete, we have had so many of these conversations just within our own, when we used to be able to go to the television station, right? When we used to be able to sit in the same room together. And we've had so many of these conversations. And what's ironic about this is so many times you've said to me, Brian, we ought to record these things and make them a podcast. Right, we have. And here we are. (laughs) So what what are the conversations in your house, Pete? Conversations are um, uh, the foremost, on the top of the list is what do we tell our kids? Um, and right now we haven't said a word and they've seen a little bit of the TV. Like my son said the other day, he says, Oh, the police are out. Dad. I said, yeah, they, you know, they are just out there to, uh, 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 you know, they go out and walk around and check things out. That's just their job. And that was enough. Um, there's going to come a time when that's not going to be enough. And we both realize it. And that's not denial. We just don't want to make them think that someone's coming into the house today. Right. Because there's small children and it, that, that, frustration will grow. Um, my wife and I discuss, um, and you know, <laughs> marrying outside of your marriage and in, in, in a situation like this is, is it's a big deal, but it's not because when you, when you sift through another personality, you kind of know what you can deal with on both sides. Right. And so my wife and I spent a lot of time talking about some of these things before we got married and decided, you know, can we do this? outside of how we might feel about each other and this work in the areas that we live. And we both decided that it could, and we've never had any problems with that Um, as a couple uh, or personally within our marriage, or that's just not that issue. But um, we talk about how, you know, I look at my kids as black kids, right? Um, And that's not to dismiss the other half of them, but as they deal in this world and how things are, my job is to prepare them for um, uh, uh, situations that could arise that may not um, happen in other families. Um, it's the way I was raised. So I would feel uh, negligent if I didn't do that. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of been my domain. My wife's like, well, you will handle that. Um, and not to be dismissive. She, in some fashion, she's like, I just don't know where to start or what to say. And I do. So that falls on, on dad, right? My wife has discussed, you know, have you felt the way that um, some of the looters have felt? I said, no, not in the rage and where I want to go to destroy things. And then we go back to the, the idea of what the black business has done for the community. And, and she knows, you know, the family history and how we've done these, some of these things. And so her awakening is, was, uh, you, you just don't learn these things. How do you know these things? I said, well, it was a matter of survival in my family. We had this, my, my uncle used to make us study every summer before we could go outside and play. We had to know who Martin Luther King was and what his speeches were. We had to know who Malcolm X was and what his speeches were about. We had to discuss what the difference is between those two and why one is appealing to America and the other is not. This is not something you're going to learn in the public school system. 
And so it, it was another element of my upbringing that was different than hers. And so we spent a lot of time talking about it. And I have a lot of books, and this is way too information, too much information, but she will kill me for saying this out loud. <laughs> I have a lot of books I read, and you know, one of them is um, Open Season by Ben Crump, who is the attorney for the Foy Flaming. And in it, he talks about all the cases that have led up, you know, the Trayvon Martins, this, that, and the other. And my, my, my wife reads the titles, and it's, you know, Illegal Genocide of Black People, Open Season, and Ben Crump is the author, the attorney. And she's like, wow, that is a heavy, heavy title. And I have several titles like that. <laughs> so we have to put those in a bookshelf that are a little different that, the, you know, most mixed company can't see when we come into the house because it, it is most people don't talk about this at the dinner table right when you're having friends over and you're having a good time in the summer this is a little too heavy for general conversation but um when you you read up on these things and i'll point something out to her you know another one is that is overwhelming is the color of law if you read some of these books and you see the systematic uh uh, uh process and how you know, in the real estate environment, and this is getting into the weeds again, the real estate environment gets into going around what the Supreme Court said, where people can live anywhere they want. And the real estate associations across America got together and said, this is the way we can work around it. And you have the redlining, which leads into political voting and all these other things. And so those are some of the systematic things that people are talking about and writing about, even to this day. And so we talk about these things. And, um, and sometimes she's a little overwhelmed and she's sad because she didn't grow up this way. She didn't have to deal with it. And now she does in a sense. And, and I don't think she feels put upon, but I think there's an oh boy moment when you realize that, oh, these are my children. And how do I get up to speed in helping them deal with some of this? Pete, I, I, in watching the George Floyd case, one thing that struck me this time before all of these days and days of protests and, and riots and other things all across the country is unlike, and you said there are so many other names that go on this list, right, of, 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 of black men who have been uh, killed in interactions with police and didn't receive this kind of reaction. And in this case, initially, it seemed in comparison to past incidents that there was more uniformity in the outrage in the this was wrong and and this shouldn't have happened and i don't know if that's a measure of just how outrageous this incident was and how clearly it was caught on camera if that's a measure of where we are in social media today or if it does reflect a mainstream change in the way people are viewing these types of situations because you heard voices who have never condemned this kind of thing before who have usually knee-jerk reaction has been to defend police and say we need to see how this plays out who were instead immediately condemning it. And yet the response has still grown into what it is. From your point of view, did you observe the same thing? And, and if so, what do you make of that? Well, and, and you know, this may need to be censored because you know, I'm in trouble for be political where journalists are not supposed to be that way. But, you know, it's, 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 I don't know what the word is. Funny was the first word that's gonna come to my mind. You know, the whole world went up in arms when Colin Kaepernick kneeled, right? And there's a meme going around, said you were mad at this guy for kneeling on a field, but you're not mad at the guy that's kneeling on a man's neck, right? And so when you think about what his message was, Colin I'm talking about, and how they got morphed into that he was anti-American and all these things, and he did some other things that were probably not 
acceptable. But in the big picture of what his message was for his kneeling on the, on the football field, the, the irony is just unbelievable. You know, if you believe his message, um, and then it's come to this, you know, that took two or three years for people even to hear. And it took another life for them to hear what he was saying two or three years ago in a locker room. So, you know, in some senses, you know, some of my friends and I have talked about like, wow, the NFL really missed a chance here. If they're America's sport to embrace a part of America um, in a nice way to address some of this stuff. And it didn't really morph into that, you know, and, and so now, you know, set that aside and then you're looking at um, here we go again. And, and wh what do you, what do you, you know, there's, there's you got all these, Notable people. You had LL Cool J who put out a rap this weekend that was just as raw as anything you've ever heard him say. And it was, you know, just, you know, you could just label it stepping on people's necks. And it's, and it's, you know, people are just feeling, you know, a guy like LL Cool J that has millions of dollars feels threatened by this. You know, you have uh, Nick Cannon, noted athlete, feels threatened by this. It, it, it's going across racial lines or racial classes in a way that, um, you know, and then you talk to people that are from the sixties. This, my mom even says, she says, the only thing missing between the now and the 1960s is the update on Walter Cronkite of the Vietnam deaths that happened. Right. And she said, everything else is the same. And she said, you know, my mom's in her seventies and she's like, I just, I don't have the strength to do this another time. Uh, and, you know, she's talking about how the next generation has to study, learn, and understand, and bring some levity to this and, and, and do the work. And, you know, now we have a longer history of this, and it's going to take a lot to get this under control um, um, and to get some understanding. And, you know, I... And, you know, it, the other thing that thinks about, and I'm just ranting here, and this would probably be a Facebook post if I wasn't talking to you guys. What is the qualification for a police officer compared to now than it was in the 50s and 60s? You know, you have, if you look at other countries, I think they're, they're, they're and I don't know, but I'm real curious about it. What, how, how long does a, a police trainee go through different, different training scenarios before they are qualified? to regulate the safety in a community. Chief uh, Flynn had, had a PhD. I don't know that most police officers have a PhD. And I'm not saying you have to go to college to be a police officer. I'm not saying to look down on people that don't do that. But I, there has to be some sort of study, academic study or otherwise, that lets you understand uh, sociology, compassion, people. And you know that's a hard job because you're dealing with the most difficult citizens among us a lot of times. You know, you're not going to go into a house and sit there and chat with someone. And I get that. But you have a response for that. You have tools for that. And they're called, uh, you know, the ATVs and the SWAT teams and the special forces and all these things. We're real good at that part. But I don't think we're real good at walking into a situation and detailing some of the nuances of personalities and issues and and because this country is made of a lot of races this isn't just a black issue right this could happen in a hispanic or asian or 
you know, we're not just one group here. And, you know, what black people sometimes go through is a precursor to what everyone will see later. And that in a lot of ways, that's always been the case. And so, you know, this isn't going, if, if this isn't getting under control, this is going to grow into a bigger problem. And we get to a point where no one will know what to do with it. Um, and I think that's where we are this week, to some degree. Pete, what do you wish white journalists would keep in mind while covering this issue? You know, I, I'm a white woman who's experienced a boatload of privilege in my life. So there are going to inadvertently be things I say or do that at the moment I probably don't realize can further hurt the group that I'm talking about. So what do you wish we would keep in mind as we're going out there and we're covering these protests and we're covering these issues? Um, this this will sound preaching. I don't mean it that way. And I've never had that reaction with you, with you Amanda. Um, very bright and capable. Always thought so. Uh, but maybe just spend some time on your own studying uh, um, and I'm guilty of it too. I, you know, I can study this with other races and I, and I haven't, and this has opened my eyes to, to that. Um, but, you know, studying a little bit of the civil rights, you know, I, I posted something about, I guess Monday was the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa riots, which was another riot where it was black wall street and maybe you've heard it or seen it. And in black uh, families, this is a, a very important story where, it was a self-sufficient black community in Tulsa, Oklahoma that had, that had thrived even during the uh, precursor years to the depression. And, you know, to this day, it was the only American city that the American military was allowed to bomb. We've always bombed other cities and other places. And, you know, hundreds of African-Americans died and they buried it for decades. And I don't think there are many survivors left of that. And they were children at that time. so you have the Tulsa, you have the Rosewoods, you have all these things, but you, you don't have a lot of people that really black or white that know that history. And I, and that's not a fault of anyone. I think it's just a hidden history. Um, but, you know, I would say to white journalists, take some time to study something about the black culture that you've never uh, thought about. Um, you know, my, my wife is, uh, we've had debates about um, in our house, uh, Thurgood Marshall. A lot of people don't know that Thurgood Marshall thought Martin Luther King was silly, right? Why would you think a man like that was silly? He thought you were sending children to do a man's job. He thought the courts were the way to go. Without the civil rights movement and the dogs being sicked on families in Alabama and other places, you wouldn't have had the uh, fast approach to get this done through the courts. So you kind of needed both to happen at the same time, but you had these two personalities who did not agree on the approach, right? And both of them, and, you know, we had pictures of Martin Luther King in my house. My dad had a picture of Thurgood Marshall in his office. Um, um, we, were, we, were, we were not in the line of uh, Malcolm X. And he's from Omaha, Nebraska, and I'm from Omaha, Nebraska. Um, so we understood it and knew where he came, came from. Um, but everybody, you know, picks their own lane. Uh, but, and I'm rambling at this point, but I think just studying the issues of black Americans and where do you start? You know, some of the books, I would say the color of law is an eye-opening book and an enlightenment. And it taught me things I had no idea. It tells you how far back it goes in this country. So you have the systematic, when people talk about the systematic racism, 
it's right there in black and white. No pun intended. But Pete, I, I think when we talk as uh, journalists, often we talk about the importance of having diversity in newsrooms. And sometimes that's because you need the presence on the air where a community sees people who look like them delivering the news and they can trust that those are people who understand. But I think, and we don't see you, producer Pete, we don't see you on the air, but I think this podcast alone demonstrates the value of that because you have for so many years now sitting, you know, 10 feet away from me in the office have educated me on things I was never exposed to. Just the conversations we have, you talk about here, the studying, the research, you know, it doesn't abdicate me of, of the responsibility uh, or, you know, it doesn't absolve me, pardon me, of the responsibility to do this on my own. But I feel like I've been fortunate to be exposed to things I never would have thought about, a perspective I wouldn't have. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important that whether it's a newsroom or any, or a police department or any other organization or corporation, why there can't just be a bunch of homogenous people sitting around making decisions who all have the same experiences and the same knowledge base. And, and when we start to share these backgrounds and these ideas, we come to a better understanding. And I think that's just one of the examples here today of what you're talking about. If you educate yourself, if you get to know cultures beyond your own, you can have a little more understanding about how you respond to them. And I think there's it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking, oh, racism is when someone has hate on their hearts and I don't have hate on my heart, so I can't be a racist. And one thing that I feel like my conversations with you, Pete, have really opened my eyes to is that it's a system. It's a lot of our unconscious bias. It's um, the little things that we don't even think about. Well, you know, and and, and I'm not picking on you, but you said a word there and I'm, I'm... You know, where it, everybody talks about Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter, and words matter, right? And so if you ask most people, what's the difference between prejudice and racism, right? People use racism all the time. Racism is power. If, if my boss can be racist, Amanda, you can probably only be prejudiced towards me. You have no power over me, mm. right? You know, and so people have to be careful and we use racism all the time. And I've, I've had debates with people. I said, no, 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 no. That's not racism. That is a prejudice because you don't have any power. And even if, I mean, my mother and I had this conversation three days ago, it, it makes you laugh in a sense, but I even corrected my mom. I was like, that's not, that's not racism, mom. I said, that person doesn't have power. And so she went to several examples in our family. Well, well is this racism? Is this racism? And so, you know, it's, 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 but if you got to know what you, you got to know what you're talking about in order mm-hmm. to share and to be and to be inclusive, everybody has to understand what the and it's it's a nuance, right? It's a small thing, but it turns out to be a big thing once you understand what that is. Well, I think we do live in a time where the where racial insensitivity and and things that are racially offensive have sort of been lumped all in with things that include the true element of what you're describing racism as a power differential and an exercise of power. I think that term is thrown around, you're right, is thrown around pretty uh, pretty commonly to mean all of those things. But I think there's still all things that are important to be aware of because sometimes it may not be the exercise of great power over someone, but it's a lack of understanding that something you've said is in fact uh, offensive or insensitive because you didn't understand the experience of the context. Maybe those all fit under one big umbrella. Um, but it's something we're all talking about more, and I think it's healthy that we're talking about it. No doubt, and I'm, I'm quite sure that this is not going to end um, in a lot of homes and a lot of places. 
Well, this has been one of the more remarkable podcasts uh, I think we've done since Open Record began a couple of years ago. And, and, and Pete, we appreciate you sharing your thoughts and some of your very raw and unexpected reactions. I think it says a lot, and we just we appreciate the opportunity to do that. And, and of course, we're going to continue bringing you more frequent episodes of Open Record as we have been, as we've been covering the COVID-19 pandemic and now even things extending beyond the pandemic. If there's a topic that you want us to discuss here on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate, please send us an email at theinvestigators at fox6now.com. That is T-H-E investigators at fox6now.com. Thank you, producer Pete, and everyone who makes this podcast possible. Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you do your podcast listening. Thanks for listening. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, and for Brian Polson, we will be back on Thursday. Thursday.